Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. We are really excited to get into the batch of movies that we watched this week. I think we watched some really good ones. But before we get into that, something we wanted to talk about was we did something really cool with a really good buddy of ours. And it's going to be a new format of the show that is going to happen kind of sporadically as the mood sort of strikes us. But uh, we're going to be doing one-off spoiler episodes, which we are calling Daddy Deep Dives. And our very first one that we've done is on a film that we covered on the show previously. It's one of our new favorite movies of all time, After Sun. So it's the three of us the two of us and our buddy Ashley, who was on the show previously, sitting down, having a long conversation, digging into a spoiler-filled conversation about After Sun and all the things that made it resonate for us and and why it is one of our favorite films that we've ever seen. There are a lot of tears. Yeah, we cry a lot in that episode. And we we went and saw it for a second time just before we recorded it. So we were already kind of in the kind of come down and just the emotional turmoil <laughs> that comes after you watch after sun. Um, but it was a really great conversation, really open and honest. So, you know, if you, if you have seen after sun, we would love for you to take a listen to that episode. We're going to be dropping it um, in a few days on, on Sunday after this episode has come out. So you can look forward to that, but yeah, highly recommend seeing after sun before diving into that episode or if you're just a big weirdo and you just want to listen to us talk for about a movie you haven't seen yet. Uh, and spoil the shit out of it for you. <laughs> yeah, and in depth. Uh, hey, more power to you. Love to see you there. But uh, yeah, like I said, it'll be a sporadic thing. Like it'll just be on movies that we want to dive a little bit deeper on. And 
uh, have a have a larger conversation about. So uh, yeah, it won't be an every week thing, but every once in a while, we're gonna be taking that daddy deep dive. A little bonus, 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 bonus. Okay, very exciting. But let's get into this week of movies. Let's kick it off with what was my mystery movie pick of the week. And I chose the 2014 adventure drama sci-fi film, Interstellar. It was directed by Christopher Nolan and written by him and Jonathan Nolan. Is that his brother? I think so. Um, if not, what what luck that he's <laughs> not somebody with the exact same last name. It stars Matthew McConaughey as Cooper, Anne Hathaway as Brand, Jessica Chastain as Murph, John Lithgow as Donald, a su- surprise appearance by Timothy Chalamet as Tom. We've seen this movie before, but I did not know that boy then, but definitely know that boy now. And David Gaiassi as Romilly. So the synopsis for this is a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. Yeah, like I said, we had seen this before we saw it in the theater but that i think is the only time we've ever seen it we've each only seen it once and that would have been back in 2014 when Mm -hmm. it came out so it's been a hot minute since we've revisited this what did you think of interstellar so it's interesting watching it again because i like movies even more than i did in 2014 Mm -hmm. i've always loved movies but we we watch a lot of movies now we were, very, we were very busy in 2014. We're like in our mid-20s. <laughs> we're both in school. We were very busy. Well, I wasn't in school. I was going to say, I don't you think were, <laughs> you were in school anymore. You were in school. I was finishing Starting my, my career, you were in school. I was uh, finishing my first degree just to promptly go back and start my second. And I wasn't as aware then as I am now of what people think of Christopher Nolan films. Right. What do you mean? People don't like him. Don't like him? Don't like him. There's like a real... Christopher Nolan is put into the same camp as like people who love Quentin Tarantino and love like the the white boy. I love these movies, movies. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so I think it's hard for me to not by nature of who I am want to just be like, eh, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I tried to put that aside. Mm-hmm. Because there's two camps, right? There's people who would be like, well, who cares if you like the movie, like the movie. And other people who'd be like, oh, oh, Christopher Nolan. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know what to think. (laughs) I don't know. So, okay, what I'll say is the first time we saw this movie, I think it blew my mind. Right. But again, I hadn't seen as many movies as I'd seen now, as I've seen now. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know. What I, just, <laughs> I shut down. Wow! Like my operating do, 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 do. system, yeah, just gone. All right, let's um, reboot. Yeah, whoop! Uh, that's my reboot sound. In case you didn't know. Okay, so often when I've seen a Christopher Nolan film on the first watch, I'm like, "Whoa, mind blown!" Except for Tenet, I was just like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> but like most Christopher Nolan films, I think it's too long. Okay. And I think everyone does a good job, but I. <sighs> Christopher Nolan movies are like accessible versions of other movies I like better. Okay. What's, uh, do you have an example? In terms of Interstellar, I like After Sun better. <laughs> or 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey better. If you put After Sun and 2001 A Space Odyssey together, mm-hmm. you've got Interstellar, but a much better film. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It's kind of, it's kind of the hunt for, and maybe it's already been made, but like kind of the, the indie vibe space movie 
and we haven't sunshine yeah that's that's more of a horror that's kind of where my head went or like maybe high life which we haven't seen have not seen it that's clear to me right yes um so maybe it's maybe it's out there but yeah I, i hear you so like as you mentioned before but you know my porcelain white boy skin showing when i say that i i do love this movie i think I, <laughs> I think it's pretty great you love a lot of a lot of christopher nolan movies don't you um you know i i don't love as many of them as i thought that i did the thing is about christopher nolan movies with the exception of the dark knight which i totally love is they're just eye candy and the scale of christopher nolan movies is always really impressive because they're just so grand and so they're so visually beautiful and he he likes to play with big weird kind of unsettling visuals in the stuff that he does and 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 use it as different tropes within his different films and I like that I find it really interesting really enjoyable and really cool and like the Oppenheimer trailer that we saw in IMAX for the yeah. first time I I'm excited about that movie it it was an incredible trailer mm-hmm and it just hints at that scale again and it get, and that gets me excited but i think the christopher nolan films that i've liked a little bit more although granted i haven't seen many of them in a long time are ones where he's maybe not trying to be so like i think the thing i struggle with in a film like interstellar or tenant or inception is i want to do these really interesting bizarro mind bending things but then i also want to explain exactly why it can happen yeah. And I like films that allow some of that to just be just Left in this world. Us. It's it just happens. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have to this is the last word I'm going to say on my inner conflict about like I can't be cool. I can't be a cool cinephile if I like a Christopher Nolan film <laughs> is I saw this on Reddit and I screenshotted it but I don't know who actually posted it so apologies. But it's a meme and it says a guide to cinema. Okay. I've shared this with you before, but you might be gone from your brain. It has four quadrants. The first is dumb, dumb cinema. So this is films about dumb, silly things made in dumb, silly ways. And it puts the Fast and the Furious and Con Air on this. Right. Dumb, dumb cinema. Yeah, checks out. Then smart, dumb cinema. Films about stupid nonsense where the filmmakers know what they're doing. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, Top Gun Maverick, which we haven't seen, and Hot Fuzz. Okay. I really like smart, dumb movies. I don't really like dumb, dumb movies. Then there's smart, smart movies. Clever stuff made cleverly. Art films. And then it says, don't ask me for specific examples. I don't watch this shit. Oh, wait, being John Malkovich, I guess that one's good. (laughs) (laughs) But we like uh, what would go in smart, smart. And finally, dumb, smart movies. Films with complex plots and ideas with uncreative and obvious filmmaking. <laughs> and there's just a big picture of Christopher Nolan. <laughs> and then a smaller picture of M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do think that's true. And and, and I don't mm-hmm. think that means you can't like those movies. Like yeah. this was posted on our slash Letterboxd. And I think people were having like a lot of fun with it. I often really like his movies on a first watch before I look at them a little bit more closely. Mm -hmm. And then I often find them a little bit too exposition heavy, a little bit too over explainy, but you know, I I have to give interstellar credit where it's due. There's a scene in this movie that just wrecks me. 
where I just yeah. like cry uncontrollably. And if a film can do that, I mean, it's getting at least a seven out of 10 for me. Yeah. Dad stuff. Yeah. Can we talk about the crying? Yeah. We were both crying, right? Oh yeah. Big time. Like heavy crying. So. And we both like, we both knew this was coming because oh, yeah. it's the highlight of the film for both of us. I'd say. I So there was an element of it that I remembered really well. Yeah. With a different character. And I didn't quite remember what happens between Matthew McConaughey's character and like characters back on earth Mm -hmm. that I hadn't quite remembered. And it wrecked me, (laughs) but I'm crying pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have not replenished the Kleenex in our basement. (laughs) So there's no Kleenex to, to deal with my, my messy mess on letterboxd. If you have patron Patreon, which I don't have or a pro account, which we do have, you can access your stats and your stats break down all time, but also by year. And I've been keeping track. I think I've mentioned it a few times on the show of like who my most watched actor of the year is. Mm-hmm. And the other day I looked and I have like 10 actors who I have seen four movies of. Yeah. So there's like, I think Willem Dafoe. I think Tom Hanks is on there. Riley Keough. Colin Farrell. Like there's, there's a lot. But one of them is also Casey Affleck. Mm-hmm. Um, and while obviously I tend to like movies he's in, I am much more skeptical of him as a human being based Mm -hmm. on things that have occurred, namely on the, I'm still here set. As I'm a crying mess in this scene, there are characters that we're seeing for the first time who were younger the last time we saw them. And so now they are being played by older actors, (laughs) Timothy Chalamet, who we were like, Oh, that boy, when he was there initially. Now we see he's being played by Casey Affleck. And in the midst of my like deep, heavy sobs, I just turn to you and I go, Casey Affleck's going to be my most watched actor of the year. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, so good. Because uh, I totally forgotten he was in this movie. Um, me too. Yeah. So, yes, this movie succeeded at making me cry. Damn this movie for making Casey Affleck potentially my most watched actor of the year. I only have a month and a half to try and watch two movies with, with somebody else. With somebody else. And I know we're going to go see Banshees of Insurance so we can get Colin Farrell But need back one more there. with him and then we can't watch anything else with Casey Affleck. Well, uh, we really want to watch In Bruges. So I feel like that could be it. Anything to bump him down. <laughs> Stay tuned. Johnny Tepp is already my most watched actor of all time and nothing's ever going to beat it. And Anybody, people can access your stats. So people can go and look at my stats and be like, 45 movies with Johnny Depp. What is wrong with this person? I'm sorry. I loved him when I was a preteen and had nothing but time to watch his bad movies. I'm never going to watch anybody else, 45 movies from anybody else because nobody's made 45 good movies. And if somebody has, let us know on our Instagram. Yeah. If you think there's an actor that I can like outdo Johnny Depp with, so he's no longer my most watched actor of all time and they're good movies and I don't have to watch like crappy 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 movies that they were in please i'm begging you yeah at bad dad dot rad dad hit us up in the messages the who can who can overtake johnny depp as kylie's most watched actor of all time take the shame away (laughs) um yeah but that one scene it all gets kicked off like we we were we were both ready and prepared and we knew it was coming but it's kicked off so subtly and beautiful by the character of romilly Mm -hmm. that's the part i remembered yeah. And it's it's so effective and it's so subtle. That scene is so beautifully crafted. 
And that's where it starts leaning into like after sun territory. Yes. And that's why it's so good. Yeah. That one scene is so awesome. Mm -hmm. Now the movie itself has things I really, really like, but because it over explains them, it can get a little bit schmaltzy Mm -hmm. where I'm like, if it, and I know, I know that's not what this film wants to be. Yeah. And I have other films to do that for me. Mm hmm. It's just that there are things I really like about this movie. Interestingly, what really hit me this time, and I don't remember feeling this way in 2014, but damn it, I didn't have Letterboxd then, so I have nothing to go back and figure out how I felt. I was feeling some really, really intense eco-grief watching this movie. Yeah. And I don't remember feeling that way in 2014 because this film is essentially set at a time where the Earth is literally on the brink of being unlivable. Mm -hmm. And... It can feel like the earth is like that right now, but we're not where they are, where it's like, you know, within the next 50 years. Oh, my God. But it feels like that could be the case with us, too. Whatever. <laughs> I was feeling that. I was like, and and maybe part of that is my resistance to this film, too, of like being like, oh, I loved it, is I don't know that I wanted to feel those feelings at that particular moment. Right. Yeah. You're, you're sport at the, at the time, we're 24 years old. And maybe st- there was still some hope that we could... The world would around. change things. We're yeah. still young and, you know, we still want, we have big dreams and things that we want to do and we want all the time in the world to do that, but the world doesn't have all the time. <laughs> no. And that was really, yeah, that, I don't know. Did you feel that this time around? I did big time. And especially because, you know, I, I kind of unknowingly picked this on a weeknight and it's like almost three hours long. <laughs> yeah. And you like let us watch something else beforehand then i was like why'd you pick a three-hour movie and not make us start it earlier i know i know this is my this is my adhd time management poor time management skills (laughs) i don't know (laughs) (laughs) um but i didn't remember that we actually spent a lot of time before we even get to space just on earth and and experiencing what that living on earth what living on earth is like during this time where all (laughs) where it's on yeah it's on the brink of collapse and I actually think I like that part of the film perhaps better than like the spectacle of space. Also, and we've talked about this on the show before, I'm terrified of space. Yeah, so the- when it's like, okay, well, you can get off the earth that's collapsing, but you have to go into space to do it. I'm like, ah, yeah, no, there, thank you. There's some very, there's some very unsettling space stuff in this too. Like, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't have imagined watching this movie in IMAX because there's just some stuff that just the way that the camera moves and the there's motion and everything it's just very it just it, it just kind of blows your mind a little bit and is very kind of overstimulating and that's probably purposeful but yeah I, i'm kind of with you space freaks me out like <laughs> yeah. i think that there's some beauty in space but oh, yeah. there's a lot of horror in space yeah the way you feel about the ocean i feel about space i'm like i respect it so i will never go into it yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> now, I will say, and I felt this when we saw it in 2014, and I still feel it now. I think they wanted to title this movie Gravity. Big time. But oh, Gravity man. stole it from them. And When did Gravity? Okay. 2013. We- I just looked it up. Oh. So the year oh, before. Oh, yeah. man. So that just like snaked them. Like, I think we saw Gravity in the theater as well. Yeah. And I have not seen that since we saw it in the theater. So I don't remember if the title Gravity is really well suited to that film or not but oh man did they want to did they want to call interstellar gravity gravity yeah oof sorry nolan and there's only like one throwaway line 
interstellar space travel i can't remember what it yeah says. yeah where they just use the word interstellar but they use the word gravity a lot oh. and the, like the the science of gravity is such a plot point yeah. and and referenced so much throughout this whole movie yeah i agree i think they wanted to call this gravity they were like damn you who made gravity oh um alfonso like the guy who did uh corian yeah the guy who did roma and yeah alfonso Curion. yeah 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 i like him but he, yeah. he, I mean, good for him for snatching this title up out of. He's Nolan's like, no hands. one's making a space movie. What Fuck do you think him. he wants to call it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have I seen his script? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, going back to just talking about like the Christopher Nolan of it all, like I think that I enjoy the eye candy. I think he, I, I totally is that agree. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> yes um both from the, the actor perspective <laughs> and he tends to have a few good like i mean jessica chastain is like totally beautiful very babely but he tends to have good looking people or at least one good looking person <laughs> i mean most actors are good looking that's why they're actors uh, no i'm just kidding <laughs> um yeah michael kane is gorgeous um <laughs> I do like Michael Caine a whole lot. Yeah, he's great. He's he can pack an emotional punch, like it's nobody's business. Uh huh. Did you know he was in Jaws: The Revenge? <laughs> Have you seen that? <laughs> uh, I've seen like the cl- I've seen clips of it. It's really bad. But the other thing with Nolan, where he can get really exposition heavy, in that exposition, he likes to get really heady with his dialogue and mm-hmm. the things he's saying, and it just it can come across as very hoity-toity mm-hmm. of just like, look how smart I am with words. Dumb, smart movie. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, you know, where I at once I was just like, I don't really understand it, but man, it is, is it ever cool the way these people are talking to each other? I'm just like, you're, you're kind of losing me and I feel like you're talking down to me a little bit and I don't appreciate it. Um, you and your brother, if that, if that's who he is. <laughs> need to cool it but i also really like in interstellar specifically something i do like is how it leans into tropes of sci-fi movies Mm -hmm. um i mean it it does the the whole wormhole analogy thing that's done time and time again but the way that it uses um space travel and kind of horror elements or suspense elements throughout it where You've kind you feel like you've seen it before, you have seen it before, but it's it's used really effectively in its service to the story, which I I thought was really great. And I don't I didn't hate my experience watching this movie. I actually quite enjoyed it. I think that it's a really effective film, despite all of the Nolanisms that kind of hang me up about it. But yeah, I think I I think I'll watch it again, but Again, maybe it'll be like years apart. Yeah. And I do, I wish it had ended like a couple scenes earlier than it ends, which yeah. is part of that. Like it, it has all of the things it needs to have. I almost felt a little bit like I did with the shallows, which we talked about a couple episodes back where I'm like, I, I knew what was going to happen. Why do you need to show it to me? Yeah. But that's, you know, that's the type of movie that Christopher Nolan is making where he like wants people to come away knowing exactly what he intended and I don't know if that's just the nature of like a big blockbuster film is they want it to be accessible to everyone. Yeah. So we need to make sure that nothing is like what? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. And but you know, everybody everybody does a great job in it. I will say that. Yeah. I I really like Matthew McConaughey in this movie. I think he's great. I also think Anne Hathaway is great in it. 
No, yeah, no, you're right. Everyone's amazing in this movie. Everyone's really great. Um, you heard it here. Yeah, everyone in Interstellar is really great. Um, how did it make you feel? Interstellar this time around made me feel a lot of eco grief. It made me feel a lot of dad grief. And it made me feel a lot of grief for humanity. But because of the nature of the film, it was only in the instant that I felt that and it didn't stay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I echo I echo the 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 piece about eco grief as well. I I was feeling that. I was also feeling like I'm 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 growing up and kind of, you know, moving past my the ooh-ah of Christopher Nolan and becoming more critical of him, which I think is for me important. <laughs> yeah, you've uh <laughs> What's your most watched movie of all time? It's probably The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You still love that movie. And that's okay. You know what? Like, truthfully, it's probably Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll say The Dark Knight. I do have to, before we move to the next film, I do have to say our niece, who's just about four, I believe. Yeah. She just watched Home Alone for the first time. And loved it because she is smart. Um, <laughs> and we saw her earlier this week and I asked her, like, what was your favorite part? And she goes, when Kevin puts the spider on the bad guys. Yeah. Bless that child. So you might have a buddy to continue to add how many times you've seen Home Alone. I freaking love Home Alone. To your list. I love Home uh, Alone so much. If, if it wasn't so, like, honestly, if I could have a top five on Letterboxd, I might throw Home Alone in there. But you can only have four, so it's not there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Enough about Nolan and his dumb, smart movies. Um, We went and saw a documentary. Big old doc time. So we went and saw the 2022 film Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's a music documentary directed and written by Will Loveless and Dylan Southern based on the nonfiction book uh, of the same title by Lizzie Goodman. It features the following bands. The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Ooh. Ooh, ooh. The Strokes, mm. The Moldy Peaches, Interpol, and LCD Sound System, among some others. Yeah. Synopsis. An immersive journey through the New York music scene of the early 2000s. A new generation kick-started a musical rebirth for New York City that reverberated around the world. So this was playing at Metro Cinema. We are children of the early 2000s like we were listening to this music as it was coming out i had the yeah yeah yeah's ep mm-hmm. um we liked many of the the bands that were featured in this so we were excited to go and like experience the kind of journey of these bands that we loved so much growing up um and then metro they have this music doc series where there's one at least one music doc played a month and then there's always a live band that plays ahead of time which is really cool so it was um, the Dot Cardigans or just Dot Cardigans? Just Dot Cardigans. Sorry. Just Dot Cardigan. Oh, no S. No wow. S. I really messed that up. Apologies. Yeah. Dot Cardigan played beforehand. Um, and then we watched the Doc. What did you think of Meet Me in the Bathroom? I was really looking forward to this movie um, because I know that people really like the book. I have not read the book. Do we, um, do we own it? I don't think so. We have some broken social scene thing. Yeah. And this is where I was getting really confused because I feel like I think Broken Social Scene has a song called Meet Me in the Basement, mm. which is what even what I accidentally wrote in my notes as the title of this movie. So I kept getting confused. But yeah, I know people really regarded, highly regarded the book and thought it was a really great story of these, you know, early 
to mid 2000s bands emerging out of New York. But I was really excited because these bands, like you said, play a lot of important, they have a lot of importance to me and played a big part in my musical taste awakening and broadening during that age. Like kind of heading into this time is when, you know, I was listening to a lot of pop punk, accessible pop punk stuff. Mm -hmm. Like my first CD albums that I bought with my own money was... Your first CD albums? My CD albums were Jimmy World, Bleed American, Blink-182, Anima of the State, and Newfound Glory's self-titled album. Do you know what my first CD albums that I bought were? (sighs) I do. This share anyway. Basically just the white stripes and the white stripes and the white stripes and the white stripes. (laughs) I loved them. But I also remember buying Fever to Tell when it was like fairly new. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of... And then from there, and this will matter later, I got really into Tegan and Sarah around the age of 13. And I know this because I cut my hair like Tegan and Sarah. And I never stopped. (laughs) Um, Yeah, every time I I show my hairstylist, I want to change my hairstyle. And then I, okay, well, show me, show me what you want. And then I send a picture of Tegan or Sarah. And then he says, okay, we love a Tegan and Sarah moment. (laughs) I'm like, yep. Um, But I started listening to Tegan and Sarah because the White Stripes covered walking with a ghost right and i was like oh i like this song and yeah so really it was the white stripes and the yeah yeah yeahs were kind of the start of my move away from avril lavigne and Mm. that music that i liked when i was more in elementary school yeah yeah i think that for me a big part like something that played a huge part into kind of shaping the music that i ended up loving and still love today was my friend Ben that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Like he just had a finger on the pulse of new stuff coming coming out. Like I think he introduced me to Yeah Yeah Yeahs. He introduced me to Interpol. Um I saw Interpol with him. I know. And I think I feel I think he invited me to that show, but at the time I didn't really spend much time getting to know Interpol at that moment. But I really regret not mm. going to the show in retrospect now. I really liked them at the time. I think his dad drove us in which was weird because i hadn't hung out with him a lot not his dad uh, with ben much one-on-one <laughs> or his dad at all <laughs> and then my sister's boyfriend at the time drove us home because it was mm. at west edmonton mall mm, yeah which is like kind of far away when you live outside the city yeah but great show though so that was that was a big that was a big reason for me wanting to see this and being excited because yeah i i love the majority of the bands that are in here and I don't know a lot of the backstory behind a lot of them. And I, I also kind of wanted to take this like nostalgia, excuse me, this nostalgia trip a little bit. Um, but, you know, after watching the film, there's elements of it that I think are really cool. Like it captures a lot of behind the scenes footage and a lot of home footage of these bands in their sort of coming up in the, in the music scene in New York and the things that they're kind of dealing with and the obstacles they have and the successes that they're seeing. Um, and, you know, it has some interviews or just some, some footage of them talking about what their goals are and things they want to achieve. But where I think it kind of drops the ball a little bit is that it wasn't really sure of the story that it wanted to mm-hmm. tell and where its focus wanted to be. And it felt very disjointed. I mean, for one, they don't have any talking heads in here. It's just all record. And maybe this is a product of the pandemic or they just thought it was a really cool artistic choice. 
but they just have it all over like phone calls. I did read though that none of the strokes, like none of that's new. Mm. That's all pulled from like other interviews. Old audio, okay. Which in and of itself is like a little, I want to say troubling. I don't know that that's the right word, but if the band itself didn't want to be involved in this and all of this is coming from old stuff, I think making that clear would actually be important. Yeah. Like, like I, I am confused if, and in retrospect, if any of the audio was new. Yeah, that's a good point. And if it isn't, why do none of these bands actually want to be a part of this documentary? And shouldn't that be part of the story? Yeah. And do, yeah. And do they want to be? Well, I think they probably don't if they're not agreeing to be a part of it. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting because we we talked about this a lot after. It just feels like it drops a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, we... Sorry, keep going. Um, We, like, start with the moldy peaches. They're what starts the whole documentary. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, Kimia Dawson talks about the last time that she hung out with Julian... Casablanca. Yeah, of the strokes. And then that's the last time we ever see the moldy peaches mentioned in the documentary. Yeah. And... It does other strange things like spending three minutes talking about Napster and like Interpol having a leaked album. And then it never talks about that again. And I'm like, well, then what was the point of putting that in there? Because it was just, it made it seem like it was going to then explore the impact of, you know, the move from album sales to illegal downloads to what we now have is streaming. Mm-hmm. And then it never does. And so it was hard to figure out what they were trying to say with this dropping of elements and also an introduction of new elements that either aren't stayed with or, you know, LCD sound system are brought in quite late in the documentary and then focused on until the end. And there's nothing that helps us understand why that's the case. Is that because LCD sound system started later than the rest of these bands? Maybe, but they don't tell us that. It's not like they could have had like a cool, here I am, a filmmaker. (laughs) like timeline thing that would come up as they introduced a new element and like tell us where in the timeline, like, is this 2004? Is this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because then it would make sense to me why we're bringing this in later in the documentary if it's meant to be chronological. Right. Or, you know, we spend some time on 9-11 in a really strange way, like a lot of time on on the events of 9-11. But much like the Napster thing, it's just kind of like just saying that this happened during this time. And not really explaining much of the effects that it has on the bands we're focused on. Well, it seems that part seemed to suggest to me that because of 9-11, people left Manhattan and went to Brooklyn where the scene flourished. Mm -hmm. But it really doesn't dig into that through the artists themselves. And I wonder if that is a result of not having them wanting to be a part of this documentary. In which case, if you make a documentary and you know what you want to talk about, then you can ask these artists about it. Yeah. But if you're pulling all from old footage and old audio, then you're trying to make the audio fit this narrative you want to create. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, it would be so cool to hear the AIS perspective on that time during nine 11 now as a reflective piece or um, how, how Interpol feels about, the Napster and what it did for them now now in comparison to streaming like it never and I get it it's trying to be like a time capsule of that time but it doesn't bring it to now no to say anything interesting and you know like it it doesn't have you and I were both joking about how we wanted a legally blonde ending for this one like a little like and here's where they are now 
Because, you know, the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs both took like seven plus year hiatuses. We don't talk about it. It doesn't talk no, about and, it at But all. they both released new albums this year. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's no looking at what does it mean to come back and do this now. And I, I haven't listened to the Strokes album. You have, but we love the new Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs album. Yeah. It freaking kicks ass. Yeah. You know, they come back seven years later and they rock it. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I I kind of said this to you when we were talking about this when we left the film. I feel like this would wor- have worked better, A, if the bands agreed to be a part of it now, but if it would have been a docuseries as opposed to just a film. Mm-hmm. And if each episode of the series focused on one band. Because mm-hmm. they would jump from band to band throughout the film and I would kind of forget about them. And they even dropped the ball on some of the bands. Like they feature them once and then it's kind of in service of one of the other bands and then they're out. Yeah, we, like we TV never on the radio is mentioned twice. mentioned, yeah. Yeah. So I would love just like a whole hour-long episode talking about the yeah, yeah, yeahs. Not from these guys. No. <laughs> and then Interpol, The Strokes, TV on the radio, give them their their time of day, you know, and... I, I think that that would have worked really well. And, the, and then maybe do like a final episode where it talks about how they all intermingle or, or something. I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like every time it got back to the IAS, I was like, yes. Okay. Yeah. And we're getting like more of this story and then we're out and then we're, we're somewhere else. And then I'm like, Oh, okay. What did we just talk about when we were back at the IAS? What, where are we at, at again? It, it was. Which again, I think would be fine if there was a through line. That's just it. But because this film didn't seem to be trying to look at anything specific and instead was just, hey, this happened. (laughs) Yeah. It was hard to be connected to where this was going. I I have a review I really liked because I think it says everything we're saying perhaps better. It was it was like a half star or one star review. Like it was uh, from Simon Abrams um, on the Roger Ebert uh, website. So I just have two paragraphs from it. It's a longer review, but here it is. A flurry of quotes often presented in unattributed voiceover narration explain how quickly the scene grew. Some bands, like The Rapture, opted out for reasons of their own. Most didn't understand or have a complete grasp on their fame. In all of this, New York City is presented as a homogenous blend of cropped amateur concert footage. Almost none of the people in the crowd get interviewed. Meet Me in the Bathroom is an impressionistic blur, more about what it felt like to be at the head of a scene than the actual scene's character identity. A few isolated scenes convincingly speak for the movie's primary talking head interviewees, like when we see Karen O perform the vocals of her band's melancholic signature hit, Maps. Other scenes illustrate how all over the place this authorized documentary tends to be, as when Murphy talks about forming a band after being invited to perform in London. Okay, but wasn't this movie about New York? And where did the moldy peaches go? Nothing is sensibly labeled in this movie, and everything is piled on top of everything else. Yep, that's... That is accurate. So... Yeah, I do have to mention, though, I'd be remiss not to, that as we were sitting in the theater waiting for the movie to start, you turned to me and said, everyone here looks like us. <laughs> oh, man. And then I turned to you and I said, yeah, a lot of toques. Yeah, you could count the freaking toques and just little hipster cuties that were in that movie. Theater. Which we count ourselves among. I, it is, to, to be fair, it's very cold in Edmonton right now. Mm-hmm. So Tukes may be both a fashion statement and practical. But, but it, most of us wear toques. Because it's cool. Year round. No, what? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wear toques all the time. If I could wear a toque at my job, I would, but I can't. So 
because teachers apparently aren't good teachers if they have a toque on their head. All right. Agree to disagree. But um, yeah, it was, it was very funny just looking at a sea of us's <laughs> within this movie theater. Do you love the yeah, yeah, yeahs when you were a teenager too? <laughs> How did you know? You're toque. Um, yeah, uh, I think I've said all I need to say or want to say about this. Like, I, I think it had some really cool footage. It was cool hearing some of the, the sound bites from the bands. I, I was partic- particularly taken with the Yaya story and I, I want to hear more of it. And mm-hmm. yeah, delve into like where they were for all those years off and, and yeah, learn more about that. Um, it, it offered some really interesting insight into some of the bands, but I just, it wasn't coherent enough to make this like really resounding for me. Um, so how did it make you feel? It just made me feel like I want to listen to all of these bands. <laughs> um, and that I, I, I really would love a docu docu series that delved into them. Like I said, but yeah, it just, it kind of left me just disappointed and wanting more. Hmm. What about you? It made me really nostalgic for this music that I loved in high school and for concert going because there was a lot of Mm. concert footage you and me both independently and together have spent a lot of time money and ear damage (laughs) on concerts um our cilia is not what it once was um but we (laughs) our cilia is not what it once was is that is that what's in your ears called I think it is. I think so. <laughs> Holy shit. That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Uh, it's true, though. We both have tinnitus from going to too many concerts. Um, and we haven't. We like Since COVID, we just haven't gone to nearly as many concerts. And I think we've replaced that with movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made me nostalgic for that, for like that experience of live music and for what it felt like to listen to these bands when they were new mm-hmm. and I was young which I'm not anymore and they're not anymore. But I just wasn't all that impressed with the documentary itself. Yeah. And I won't remember it. Yeah. And I don't really recommend it. No. Just listen to the music. Yeah. Watch. I'm sure there are oodles and oodles of YouTube interviews with all of these bands. Pick the ones you actually care about mm-hmm. and just go search for some. That's probably where all the audio came from. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sorry, meet me in the bathroom. I ain't meeting you there. Yeah. Oh, actually, maybe. Cause, and if I am, I, I probably have diarrhea. <laughs> Oops. So you might want to leave the bathroom. Uh, it's uh, all right. <laughs> all right. So the next film that we watched uh, was one of our anticipated films that we wanted to see that was coming out. We saw the 2022 drama slash music film Tar. It was directed and written by Todd Field, who it felt like a name I had heard before. Like it's just one of those directors, like a, like a Claire Denis, like it's just like out there. And I'm like, Oh, I, I think I must know Todd field. No, I just know him as like one of the background guys in the movie twister. <laughs> no, you know him. He directed little children. I've only seen that once. Yeah, but you've seen it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Todd field. I see you. <laughs> um, but you thought he'd done more. Yeah. And he hasn't yet. Yeah. Gotcha. I, yeah. I thought he's like a big chance. It's not like little children was like, little children was written by, Leftovers guy, right? Tom Perota, yeah. Tom Perota, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it stars the astounding Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tarr, uh, Nomi Merlant as Francesca, 
Nina Haas as Sharon, and Sophie Cower as Olga, as well as Mark Strong as Elliot. What? That's my name, but it's spelled differently. Um, and the synopsis is, set in the international world of Western classical music, the film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer, conductors, and first ever female music conductor of a major German orchestra. Yeah, we were really looking forward to this one just because it's it was getting a lot of buzz, but like the buzz kind of seemed divided. Like it, it was one of those things where people really didn't like it or people really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen a lot of four and a half fives in my letterbox, um, but it's also seen a lot of like ones, twos. Mm-hmm. But uh, what do you think of Tar? I will start with I liked it. Ah, The theater experience was really funny in a cute way. Because we went and saw this with our frequent movie accompaniment, Ashley. Um, and then it was, so it was us three and then two other people on their own. Mm-hmm. And just, every, I was like, wow, those guys really want to see Tar. Yeah. Um, Cause it was like a 9 p.m. show on a Wednesday. Yeah. And it's a long movie. It's like over two and a half hours long. Yeah. So that was really, really cute. But it also was great because it is a slow, quiet movie. Mm-hmm. And this is easily one where with the wrong audience, it'd be hard to stay engaged with the movie. Big time. But because we had the right audience, A, very few people, and B, the five of us in the theater clearly wanted to be there, I was completely enthralled with it. Yeah. This was a movie that, you know, I don't know how this happened because I don't, I love movies, clearly. I don't like long movies. (laughs) Like, as soon as it's like over two hours, I'm like, why? What's your, like, ideal length of a movie? Hour and a half. Yeah. You see 90 minutes, you're like, perfect. Gorgeous. Uh, anything under 145, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah. Um, two hours, if it feels like it's justified based on what I see of the film. Once we start getting beyond two hours, I'm like, why? Do you think that's like, do you think that's why we like horror movies so much? Because horror <laughs> Exclusively. Mov- we exclusively like horror movies so much because they're short. <laughs> But that's kind of that's kind of a big thing about them is that they don't tend to run longer than an hour and a okay, half. Okay, but some of my favorite movies are quite long. They just have to be able to justify their their runtime to me. I don't think Interstellar justifies its runtime to me. So what I was going to say is I don't I don't know how in the heck we ended up watching three of five movies this week that are like almost three hours long. Yeah, that's true. Because you know you know I don't love it. After Sun's tight, right? I don't know. Probably. I specifically picked a very short mystery pick next because I was done with three hour movies. (laughs) But what I will say is this one justified its runtime to me. I don't Mm. think for everyone. I think some people are probably going to be like boring, but I was engaged completely the whole way through. Often when I'm watching a movie that's like over two hours, I'm like, oh, when is this going to be over? Even when I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I didn't feel that way about this. At no point was I like, are we near the end here? Mm -hmm. Um, I just was totally enthralled by the film itself. And I think if you're in the right environment and you're somebody who likes a slower movie, a quieter movie, one that like tension builds throughout Mm -hmm. that this movie will be something that will engage you. Yeah, I totally agree. And enthralled is the perfect word. And I have that, I have that in my notes too. It just totally gripped me from the beginning into, you know, kind of keep things on brand with what the film is about. It felt like a string tightening the whole time Mm, that's a really good way to put it yeah um and you're just kind of waiting for when's it gonna snap yeah totally and 
you f- and that's what keeps you engaged the whole time. And it's all led by an incredible Kate Blanchett performance. Yeah, she Lydia rocks Tara. it. And and she's also very babely in this. She's rocking like a very like lesbian chic look, which is I mean, I think she defines herself as a U-Haul lesbian at one point. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, um, the fashion was great. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Um it's uh we were kind of talking about this afterward. And this is definitely the type of character study, in this case, the character of Lydia Tarr, that I prefer as a movie. I think we both prefer as a movie as opposed to a show, mm-hmm. like, a, like, like a succession or a Breaking Bad, where it's just focused on shitty people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm happy to dip into that world with this person for two hours, three hours, whatever it may be, but then I can dip back out. Mm-hmm. Committing to a bunch or a singular shitty person that does crappy things to everybody that's around them for multiple seasons, hour-long episodes where I have to stay in this icky world with them. Maybe it's just because I've gotten older and just more aware of the things that I like and don't like. I, I wonder now, would I would I watch Breaking Bad? I probably wouldn't if it came out today. I didn't watch it. Which isn't to brag. Like when I tell people I haven't seen Breaking Bad, sometimes people get quite, quite almost angry and like aghast at me. And I say, I understand it's a good show. I am, me not having seen it doesn't mean I don't think Breaking Bad is good. I understand it's well made, it's well written, it's well acted. I understand all that. I just, I watched the first season in a bit and I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't deal with somebody that was so toxic and awful to everyone around him and i didn't see any redemption coming and so i was just like and i was in a dark place my dad had recently died (laughs) i was just like i i don't need to watch this i have seen the last episode the first season and a bit and the very last episode because i am an awful human being (laughs) apparently but I don't even I don't even have an inkling of desire to watch Succession. And again, that's nothing against the show. I understand yeah. it's well made and I totally get why people like it. It's just not the type of media I'm able to engage in. Yeah, totally. I I so many people like at work and online were talking about how great Succession was. And I had a bit of time one day. So I watched the first two episodes of the first season. And, and you know, I'm just like, this isn't for me. I I'm not Sure, it might have a quippy thing every once in a while. That's funny, but I just don't like any of these people. And you know, that's that's okay if that's your jam, if if that's what you want to get into. But that's just not what I gravitate towards anymore. A nice sweet spot of that for me is Mr. Robot, in that there is some unlikability mm-hmm. and there is a lot of complexity, but at its core, it's about flawed people trying to do what they think is right. Yeah. But there is a lot of moments throughout that series where like the character of Elliot is really unlikable, also spelled different. It's mm-hmm. your name, spelled mm-hmm. different. Um, but that's about as close as I can get. And Mr. Robot is one of my favorite shows of all time. So yeah, again, like I totally, some people don't like the the weird shows we like. And, and I, I love when people feel differently about things. I just like to know why. Well, and like when there's, when there's growth and there's change, like, like you said, with watching Breaking Bad, you didn't see a sort of change in the main character of Walter on the horizon. And there isn't really any throughout that whole show. Whereas a show like the leftovers or Mr. Robot are, we see our characters go through an arc. 
So I think that just speaks to like what you and I like. But again, we are not the be all end all. You're, get, you're getting real angry. Ooh, what, yeah, well, because we are the be all end all. Oh, we, <laughs> what we say. Anyway, I understand the appeal though, because I did like it in this movie. Like, yeah. I don't think I could watch a show on Tar no. that lasted for four or five seasons. Mm-hmm. But Lydia Tar is not a great human being. No. What she is and what I think exists in Breaking Bad in succession, to my knowledge, is a very ambitious human being. And if this does not take us back to Macbeth, mm-hmm. what it's like to watch a person who has so much potential and could be great. This is the arc of the tragic hero. Sorry, students who are listening. And then watching that unfurl and either a great person becoming a monster or the realization that somebody has always been a monster. But at the at the center of it is ambition Mm -hmm. and what ambition does to a person. And I think even though I haven't watched succession or breaking bad, that that's a part of that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly a part of tar. And I really like Macbeth. And I think that there is something incredibly compelling about watching how power and ambition take hold of a person or how a person wields the power and ambition they have, which I think is more the case with Tar. Yeah. And like you said, you made this really great connection to like the string winding. There's so much we can't say about this without giving things away in the film, but holy moly does this film, which, you know, objectively is a drama, Mm -hmm. right? That's a drama with classical music. Mm Mm-hmm has some of the scariest tensest scenes I've ever seen in anything. Yeah. Like it harnesses the techniques of horror movies for these specific scenes and wow, really well done. And I think a a really cool detail is there's, um, I don't know if it happens twice or just once, but where Lydia hears screaming Mm -hmm. and those screams were taken from the Blair Witch Project. No way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's nuts. And really cool. And I feel like it's, I feel like Todd Field must have some appreciation and love for horror movies mm-hmm. and in putting in that audio when he could use anything. There's some like really great horror movie-esque yeah. sequences. And I here. think, I think by using that audio, he's showing his love for horror movies and that that has been an influence in his work, even though this is mm. decidedly not a horror movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like Parasite in that it has a couple moments that are like quite unsettling really? and get under your skin. skin. Yeah. But at, at the end of the day, this is in no way a horror movie. Man, this conversation is making me like this movie a lot more. I already liked it, but it's like making me like it a lot more. But well, something something I wanted to say to you just really quick um, before we move move on to the next thing is that I don't think I've said this to you, but I really like when you pull a little bit of Shakespeare out in, in whatever we're watching. <laughs> You're like, ah, yeah. That that's classic Macbeth. <laughs> why why do you like that? <laughs> I just think that I think it's really great because I think that the sort of I'd say you know, the unfortunate norm about Shakespeare is that it's just like this bullshit you have to do in high school and nobody understands it. But you actually bring life into teaching Shakespeare and make it applicable and like have your your student so much so that students of yours have written their diplomas on Shakespeare. I don't think anybody writes their diploma on Shakespeare. That's not true. <laughs> but I, like, uh, you're making me sound real good here. But but I think I think that that's what you bring to the table, and I really like your analysis of Shakespeare. And then that I, I really enjoy how you can put Shakespeare into anything that we watch, or his works into anything that we watch. Well, I'm gonna I, thank you. 
That's very kind. Thank you. I have, and I must be clear, only read the Shakespeare that I teach. That's fine. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't really know Shakespeare all that well. But um, if it's Macbeth, if it's Macbeth or, or Hamlet, Hamlet or Midsummer Night's Dream, <laughs> we're in the money. Th- th- and that that's the Shakespeare pocket we live in. Yeah, that's all we got. Well, thank you. Um, I do bring up Shakespeare a fair amount here <laughs> because I teach it so often. Um, yeah, I think when you say that tar is something you like more than where you think about it. So I really like the ending and I, I don't want to say anything else about it other than I really liked the ending. Yeah. But the more I read about the ending, the more I, the more I saw how brilliant that ending was, Mm -hmm. um, that I wouldn't have necessarily gotten on a first viewing. And this is a film I definitely can see myself watching again. Yeah. And I think it is one like how I feel about some of those shows we've mentioned, where I think even if you watch this and it wasn't for you, because I think there's some of the critiques I've heard about it are in what it is exploring about the character of Tar. Mm-hmm. And I totally get that. And this would be one that, you know, if we were having a daddy deep dive on, we could get into the complexities of that and, and what it's exploring. But I think, I personally think you'd be hard pressed whether you like the film or not to not understand that it's a well-made film. Yeah. So when I say I don't like Breaking Bad, but I understand it's a good show... I would hope that people would recognize that about this, that like even if the story isn't for you or you didn't like it, that it is very well made. The There's a one shot in it mm. that you had to lean over to me and say, do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> that was a one shot. Um, Kate Blanchett is phenomenal in it. And all of those supporting characters, I think the more viewings that I were to, if I were to do on this film, I think the more I would start to appreciate these secondary characters yeah and how they simmer in the background yeah yeah it's a really well-made movie like honestly if this gets i know academy awards are bullshit but i can get on board with this film being nominated for things yeah like the more we've talked about it i i kind of i kind of think that the the way that this film was made is masterful and i think it it's it can go to it can be attributed to the performances it can be attributed to the cinematography and the different sequences without this, but like specifically that, that one long take, that one long take in this, I think is particularly masterful because it allows us to see every detail within that scene, which matters when we revisit that scene later in the film. Mm-hmm. And I, you just kind of, you revel in all these moments and like the movement of the camera in the scene is so dynamic and interesting and cinematic and it just allows us to delve really deep into like a very unfiltered Lydia Tarr mm-hmm. and who she is and how she operates in this world and within her profession. It's beautiful and masterful. And I agree with you too. The ending of this film is so great and it's, it's worth the price of admission. And I, I think I'm understanding about myself more and more that the ending of a film can make or break how it lingers in me or if I forget Mm -hmm. about it. The ending of the film, I think is everything to me. Yeah. And it can be a five star film up until the ending and lose, lose it. Yeah. Or it can be a four star film up until the ending and gain that last star, you know? Well, and like this, this is, this is not, (laughs) this is nothing, not saying anything new, but the ending is the thing that you leave your audience with. It's, 
it's the last thing that's going to stick with them. Um, After Sun does it magnificently. Oh, I will never stop talking about After Sun. Um, but and but like with Interstellar, you know, like you kind of mentioned, like it goes too far. It 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 leads its audience too far and doesn't leave enough up to them to kind of take away from the film. Mm-hmm. It like kind of presents it with a, with a nice bow. And you don't need that. You can trust your audience. This film really trusts its audience mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing and leaves things up to interpretation for its audience, which mm-hmm. I really appreciate. Same with After Sun. Like that's that's the shit we like. Mm-hmm. We we like when everything's not tied up and buttoned nicely necessarily. And and one and Another thing about the ending is that they put all of the end credits at the very beginning of the film. Not all of them, but most the of them. The majority yeah. of them. But it's so funny because I had a moment when they were rolling at the beginning. I'm like, oh, they screwed up. Did you really? <laughs> I did. So I had prior, I was really trying to avoid as much as I could about this film, but I had seen a couple people say, mention the ending. So when I saw the opening credits going so in depth into the film, who has made the film, mm-hmm. I kind of thought it was just going to end and there would be no end credits at all. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they're front loading so that we can just end. And then I was a little surprised that there still were some end credits. Yeah. like I think somebody, I mean, I'm sure somebody has, but I want a really, a really like known film to just end. Yeah. Like it's very, no end credits, it's very period. old school. It's like older movies. They just, you, they hit you with like the, the, the end. But let me tell you. End slate and then they're out. Let me tell you. Streaming services are not designed for that to happen <sighs> because it freaking ruined our experience of Psycho to have the final frame interrupted by watch next. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Ugh, anyway. Yeah, when you have a bunch of, when, when it's freaking telling you to, to watch like freaking Ozark and Big Mouth and it's covering up the 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 end title card on the bottom and you have to exit out of that to actually see the words the end. I hate it so much. Yeah, and it's but it's not just it's Netflix, it's Apple, it's YouTube, it's everywhere, right? And Amazon's particularly bad. Well, that's because we don't have our own Amazon account so we can't change it. That's true. We we are dishonest. <laughs> I mean, we have our own Amazon account. Yeah, we are playing by the rules. I'm going to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. All right. How'd Tar make you feel? It made me feel a lot of discomfort and a lot of frustration. I felt like I was simmering, mm. but I was enthralled the entire time. Couldn't look away. Yeah. Yeah, made me feel on edge the whole time. Again, much like that string tightening metaphor. Um I felt like I was just like my my attention was just being like pulled and I was just I was so in, engrossed in what was going on and yeah enthralled from beginning to end. I loved it. And yeah, this conversation made me love it even more. That's because it was smart. So smart. Okay, it was my mystery pick. And I was sick of three hour movies. <laughs> so I picked a one hour and twelve minute movie. Hell yeah. Also, you had said, if we want to keep having Criterion Channel, we need to watch at least one thing from it a month. So I filtered my watch list by Criterion Channel and picked something from that. Perfect. (laughs) I picked the 1973 animated sci-fi Fantastic Planet. It is directed by René Laloux and written by Laloux and Roland Tuper, and it is based on a novel by Stéphane Wu. Uh, I didn't do starring because it was all of the dubbed actors, and I 
Uh, just, I just got frustrated. Gotcha. Um, so there are the original film with original audio is in French. Mm-hmm. And there are people who do those voices. Synopsis. <laughs> On a faraway planet where blue giants rule, oppressed humanoids rebel against their machine-like leaders. I've been wanting to watch this for a long time. The cover is so compelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really know anything about it, to be honest. Yeah. Um. So I just put it on and hoped for the best. What do yeah. you think of Fantastic Planet? Yeah. When when the title came up, I was like, I've heard this. I for sure have heard this. Uh, and then you said like, you know, the poster, right? And it wasn't coming to mind. But as soon as I looked this up afterward, I was like, oh yeah, like I've seen this poster everywhere. Well, not everywhere. I've seen it before. <laughs> I am sorry. I did. F- I, I was just thinking that it's not cool of me to not name the voice cast just because I got frustrated because then I'm as bad as IMDb who lists the dub cast first. So I just found it. So Tiwa is voiced in the original French by Jennifer Drake. Young Ter is Eric Bojin. Um, and adult Ter is Jean Valmont. Om is Yves Barasque. Master Sin is Jean Topar. And Master Taj is Gerard Hernandez. Beautiful. I just, I, I yes. Thank I you. don't want to be part of the problem. Yeah, no. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, watching this film, I was totally taken by the gorgeous art style. Holy crap. It's... They're like paintings. Yeah, it like is old, like tiny. cool and beautiful. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it kind of reminded me of some of the like cursed animations that you see on the internet. <laughs> like there's this kind of creepy and unsettling factor to it a little bit. And I know that this this film is kind of aimed more at adults. Like it's not a kid's movie at no, all. No, no, no. Um, but there is that sort of like uh, gets under your skin uncanny like i did have a thought while we were watching it like what would it be like to have seen this as a kid Mm, yeah 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 now we didn't see it as kids what i can say is that if we had been in a different state of mind than we were in if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it would have been wild (laughs) yeah 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 because this movie is so trippy very trippy yeah like the animation is trippy. The um, score is really like. It's very Pink Floyd vibe. Yes. Yeah. It's very like plink plonk. Plink plonk. <laughs> you know, Pink Floyd. Plink, plink, plink plonk, plonk Floyd. Plink, 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 plonk. Uh, you know what I mean though? I do. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It's kind of like. It's kind of like. <laughs> when the rain is just starting to hit the roof and you just hear like boop, boop, that's boop, what i'm boop, yeah plink plonk <laughs> that's what i meant ah, plink plonk. <laughs> yeah no it's very much that and that just kind of it's a really great compliment to the art style and the yes. anim- and the animation style and that again that adds to just how kind of unsettling it is a little bit but otherworldly yes yeah so this movie is most certainly an allegory Big time. And for those of you who don't know what an allegory is, <laughs> I'm just going to put on my teaching hat. An allegory. I see it. It's a, it's a really big hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you if you don't know who I am, I have some hats and this one's the allegory hat. <laughs> so allegory is when the film itself is making a commentary on something in in our real world through what's happening in the film. And I was like, I can feel that this is allegorical. Like I can feel that it is 
attempting to comment on our world. Did you have a thought on what it is an allegory for? So I thought that it was an allegory for animal versus human rights. Um, yeah. And kind of, you know, that, that kind of that focus it, with, with, with a very specific focus on control and over a different species. So, yeah. The idea of like freedom versus like, yeah, oppression. Yeah. Like in, in terms of control, like it's like having it, losing it, gaining it, wielding it. Mm. And how that affects other people, you know, and how sometimes the tables can turn and how we try to, we almost try to leverage control against each other when there's one entity that's oppressed and one that isn't. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I got like specifically about animal rights versus human rights. So I felt that pretty significantly in the first part of the film and it really felt like it was looking at like pets yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, because we, um, if you don't know, we love animals. We don't eat animals um, and haven't for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but that it's not looking at that. No. They don't eat the ohms. Yeah, no. But they keep them as pets and they dress them up and they, you know, they don't, they play with them even when you can, you know, they, you can tell that they don't want to be played with. And I was like, oh man, do I do that when I like pick up the cat and smush him to my face? <laughs> And I'm just like, hi, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> when I said that, um, our beautiful boy Thompson, who is sitting beside Elliot, lifted up his head, looked at me, <laughs> and then started cleaning himself. He's like, you said I love you three times? <laughs> Must be about me. <laughs> it's how I summon him. It's like Beetlejuice, but I love you. Yeah. Um, but then, so anyway, I, I felt that at the at the beginning, but the film becomes so much about the idea of intelligence. Yeah. And when one group denigrates another group because they don't see them as intelligent. Yes. And that, to me, didn't necessarily easily square away with animal rights and seemed like it might be exploring something else. Now, I will say like that what's on the Wikipedia page is quite small. It just says interpretations. It says the film's narrative has been considered to be an allegory about animal rights and human rights as well as racism. Hmm. Sean Axemaker of Turner Classic Movies referred to the film as, quote, nothing if not allegorical, writing that it's, quote, not a stretch to see the fight against oppression reflected in the civil rights struggle in the United States, the French in Algeria, apartheid in South Africa, and when injustice takes a turn to wholesale annihilation of a, quote, unquote, inferior race, the Holocaust itself. Yeah. Liz Oanesian of LA Weekly speculated on the film being a commentary on animal rights, using the trike's treatment of the ohms as evidence and writing that the film places, quote, humans in roles of pets and pests. Mike D'Angelo of the AV Club wrote that, quote, the trag ohm dynamic is broad enough to be multi-purpose, reflecting both racism and animal rights via how would you like it role reversal. Yeah. And that's all that it says. Yeah. Which I wonder then, if something is that broad, broad enough that the allegory can fit so many different things, does it lose its ability to be particularly biting or particularly thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's like broadly interesting, mm. but maybe more easy to let go after. Maybe. Because or at like, first I was, sorry, I'm interrupting you. You go ahead. Well, and maybe it's purposefully broad so that 
like, yeah, people can take away their different meanings or interpretations of it. And that's the intention is they want you to be able to see those different things. Like maybe, maybe like you said, like it's a little bit more blatant, blatant in the beginning or in the early parts of the film where it could be attributed to animal rights, but it kind of evolves past that a little bit. I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's a disservice that it's trying to be so broad. I also don't know if it is trying to be so broad or if I just need to read more about it. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the this is a film that I bet there is a lot written on behind a paywall. Like if you had access to JSTOR, there's probably some great <laughs> academic articles written on it. Yeah. But I was a little surprised that the Wikipedia page was so thin on like that analysis section. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I would have to revisit this with a, like a critical eye looking for the allegory mm -hmm. um, to make a little bit more meaning of it. But regardless of that, I just found the imagery and the experience of watching it really compelling and evocative. And those, you know, one thing that you said while we were watching is as soon as this is done, I have to look up and see if people have dressed as tregs for Halloween. Yeah. Because they're really compelling. Yeah. One thing I will mention is you, uh, you were wondering if, this was referenced in science fiction double feature from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which it isn't. But Barry Bostwick does the dub of the adult protagonist. Oh, really? In, in the English version of this film. So oh, that was kind of funny. Well, it's so funny because they reference Forbidden Planet and not Fantastic Planet. But the whole time I was thinking that Fantastic Planet was was referenced in that so i'm kind of tying threads to rocky horror picture show just through some of the like themes and some of the visuals throughout the film and some of them actually i think work and have a tie to rocky horror picture show and some of the things there and this having come out two years earlier than rocky horror i was like oh maybe like yeah they pulled this and like this and want to reference this no <laughs> not not even you i can mean, read it into it if you want but yeah Something that I do find interesting, um, and we talked about this when we talked about Knife and Heart with Lori, is translation and the trickiness and shift in meaning with translation. Because I know a, a little bit of French. I took French until French 30. I'm not great at it. I definitely couldn't have a conversation, but I know bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And the French title is La Planète Sauvage. And the you know, when we were watching it anytime they would say fantastic planet, it would be planet sauvage. And I'm like, that doesn't mean fantastic in French. It means savage or wild. Mm -hmm. So the French title in a direct translation would be the wild planet or the savage planet, not the fantastic planet. And the connotation of those two words is is really different. Yeah. Um, and I, I just always find that really fascinating, this like what gets shifted, not lost per se, but changed in translation such mm -hmm. that then it's interpreted in a different way because I teach a, a translated text, a translated play in my English 30 classes. And I talk about how like we are studying this translation of the text mm -hmm. and a different, even a different English translation might result in a different analysis. So we are not studying the original text by the original author. We are studying the translation of this original text by this translator. Mm. because we can only analyze what's in front of us that we can comprehend. And so how does that shift meaning to look at this as fantastic versus wild or versus savage? Yeah. 
And then does that speak more to what you're talking about with the aesthetics and the, if it's not a fantastic planet, but a wild planet? Yeah. That's so interesting because I wonder if even like the filmmakers, if that was their intention setting it out, that that's what the English translation would be. I Um, don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're right. Like it's not necessarily that it loses anything. No, I don't like the idea of loss, but but shift or change. It does change. Yeah, exactly. It changes it. I mean, I don't know that these folks even necessarily would have known that this would become a film seen by English-speaking folks because it's on the Wikipedia pages classified as an experimental adult animated science fiction film. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It It is well lauded in a lot of people. It's on like best of lists and, but it's, it's very particular. It's this very yeah. strange, like it, it honestly, it made me think of, you know, the new Pixar, Pixar or Disney, Disney film that's coming out strange, Strange world. Strange world. Like that seems like fantastic planet for kids. Right? <laughs> we'll see. We will see. But anyway, I just, yeah, it was. That is interesting. That idea of translation is really, really interesting to me. And because French is the only language that I know any words in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we watch a film with French dialogue and English subtitling, I think, huh, I, I understood what I heard yeah. differently than what I'm reading. So I understood the the French audio in my brain from from the little French that I know. I understood that to mean something different than what the subtitles are telling me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. This whole film was really interesting. I, I would like to revisit it in the future. Because, um, yeah, like it... It is a it is a visual treat, and it's also a bit of a brain buster. It is a brain buster where I just came away being like, I know it's saying stuff, and I had glimpses of moments where it made me think carefully about what I thought it might be representing. And I don't know if I did a disservice to myself by trying too hard to figure out the allegory while I was watching it, if I should have just experienced the film and let that go, mm-hmm. um, or if I should have been trying harder. I don't know. <laughs> hard to say. Um, How Fantastic Planet or... La Planète Sauvage make you feel? Like I said, it made me feel a little unsettled in its kind of approach to things, but in the best possible way. And it really, it made me feel swept up in its visuals and uh, its artistic style and the messaging that it was trying to get across, whether or not it's right or wrong. I think like trying to parse that out and figure that out we don't like right or wrong here yeah i i think that that's part of the fun of this so i was i was swept up in that how about you honestly it made me feel spacey yeah i get that yeah like i was not in a different state of mind while i was watching this but it made me feel like i was yeah 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 there's just like those those very unique films that just make they they feel like they alter your state yeah it made me feel a little like unmoored from reality where Mm. i was like whoa like (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. what's going on (laughs) I will be clear because you already said it. Uh, I really like Pink Floyd, so maybe I've just got a... Forefathers of the Plink Plonk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, they were... Pink Floyd was the 70s, though, right? So right around this time, maybe La Planet Sauvage is also forefather of the Plink Plonk. There you go. They are contemporaries of the Plink Plonk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Pink Floyd. Oh, they started in 1965. Okay. There you go. Well, forefathers of the Plink Plunk indeed. <laughs> Take us to our last movie, Elliot. All right. So last film of the week we went and saw in the cinema. Uh, it was the 2002 action-adventure drama from Marvel Studios, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. It was 
Directed by Ryan Coogler, written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole. And it stars, we got a whole list here. I'm going to list them all because they were all pretty incredible. I know. I made my list really long too, so I'm glad that we were on the same page. Uh, Letitia Wright as Shuri. Lapita Nyong'o as Nakia. Denai Guerrera as Okoye. Winston Duke as M'Baku. Angela Bassett as Ramonda. Tenok Hereta as Namor. Martin Freeman as Everett Ross. Dominique Thorne as Riri. Uh, and Michaela Cole as Anika. The synopsis is, the people of Wakanda fight to protect their home from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of King T'Challa. I think that this was a very a film with a very unique challenge of having to continue a series about a character who the actor who plays that character has since passed away. And how do you pivot and continue to tell that story? So what do you think of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever? So it is a movie with so much more bound up in it than just, oh, another Marvel movie. Yeah. Because of that, because of the death of Chadwick Boseman and the conditions of that death, you know, like like many folks who were involved in the making of this film not being aware until closer to, to when he died or after that he had been ill. Um, and it, I think it'd be a person would be hard pressed to not be bringing that with them into the viewing of this film. Mm -hmm. It's so different from this name, Richard Harris, the fellow who originally played Dumbledore in Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that actor passed away after the second film. And in that you're adapting a series. You can't just take out the character of Dumbledore without fundamental. and, And at the time the series wasn't even finished like being written or like, yeah, published in in its entirety. So you can't just take that character out. You have to recast it or have there been other more well-known instances you can think of where a character is recast after the death of an actor. I mean, that was the one that came to my mind. And I remember, you know, being a kid who, and, and being resistant to the new Dumbledore. Yeah like not being happy that it was a new actor. And so I think there was, you know, there was a real challenge. I I read that um, Chadwick Boseman's brother has said on the record that he feels Chadwick would have wanted the character to be recast rather than retired and wouldn't have. Uh, the brother said something to the effect of, like, my brother did not have such an ego that he would want this character to die with him. Right. Um, but I think if you recast that character, you're going to have challenges in terms of how audiences respond to that. And we're not just talking about unfeeling machines making this decision. We're talking about people who worked with new love, had bonds with the person Mm -hmm. having to make a decision about what they do about this character. And it's not like the character of Dumbledore because the story can be shifted and changed. It's not set in stone. It's not a direct one-to-one and and you know so they made the choice not to recast the character of t'challa i don't think that means we'll never have another t'challa just based on how marvel works yeah we're in a multiverse saga right now so who knows there could be a different version of t'challa that it isn't this version and i don't think that's out of the question but i think the time for that was not now i agree um so to give a little bit of context I love the first Black Panther film. Mm-hmm. Like, love it, love it, love it. And you have a bit of a complaint 
in that when I teach something, because I teach Black Panther, I watch it so much that I don't want to watch it at home. Yeah. So films like The Green Mile, Minari, Sound of Metal, Pleasantville. Um, you talk about them all the time. And because I'm I teach like, them. I'm like, those are so great. I would love to watch those. But I know that you watch, you you watch them just, sometimes multiple times a day. Yeah, at, I'm going to be work. watching The Green Mile twice. Twice each day for about three days at work this week. <laughs> and the next week I'll be watching The Sound of Metal. Or Sound of Metal. Um, and I'm just like, can we, do, you, do you maybe need to brush up on Sound of Metal at <laughs> home before you teach it to your students? I'm like, no, I'm going to watch it with them. Uh, so Black Panther is one of those. I teach it in my grade 10 classes. And I've seen it so many times. And like you're saying, sometimes I'm... You've got, you've got two grade 10 classes at once, both semesters. I'm watching it four times in a year. And I'm not just watching it. I'm mm -hmm. teaching it. I'm yeah. talking about it. We're looking closely at it. There's particular scenes that I have us in the first film. Uh, we rewatch all of the ancestral plane scenes to look at the character foil between Killmonger and T'Challa and to look closely at how Ryan Coogler creates that foil through film technique, mm -hmm. um, through color, through sound, through camera position, um, through characterization and it, it's done really 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 well so i just i love that movie and i know i know it inside and out because i teach it and i talk about it yeah and you know having seen it as many times as i have there are parts in the original black panther that really wear on me particularly the um the scene i believe they're in south korea in it mm. um gets a little boring especially because i'm not an action person and like the like in this film the third act fight scene Typical Marvel. Yeah, fight I can scene. just turn my brain off at it. And I, the first time I watched it, it might be a little thrilling. And then the second time I'm over it. And when you, I've seen something like a, a dozen or more times, I'm really over it. So that's my context. I love the original Black Panther film and I've seen it so many times and talked about it so much and so in depth. So I was really nervous and excited for this film. Mm -hmm. You and me have, I think, made no secret of the fact that we have loved Marvel. Yeah. Got us through the pandemic. Got us through the pandemic. I still really love uh, the Captain America movies and the Avengers movies. But I have, and we've made no secret of this, become fatigued with Marvel. Yes. And I don't love it the way I used to. Mm -hmm. So all of that was on its shoulders, especially because we have really not been big fans of the last couple things that have come out. Well, and Black Panther was also set up in previous phases. And we... we generally liked the previous phases more than this one. So like having another, I'm feeling the same way about the next Ant-Man movie. Like these are people that we've been with for a while now who have a few movies that they've been in. So I, f I feel like it, I'm putting that on their shoulders too of mm -hmm. like, I liked you before. Can you please keep being good and break the mold or break the formula of current Marvel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with all that being said, I really liked this movie. Yeah. I didn't love it. It didn't blow my mind and make me be, be like, Marvel's amazing again. Yeah. But the movie on its own and paired with the first Black Panther, I really, really liked it. Like a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm the same. Uh, coming out of it, we both kind of had a bit of a different response to it. I needed to, I needed to sit with it a little bit more. I think you were able to make that quick jump to how you felt about it because you've, you've seen Black Panther so many times mm -hmm. and you know that story and those characters so well. I've only seen it twice and they've been quite far apart from mm -hmm. each other. So I needed a little bit of time to dive into that a little bit and do a little bit more reading online. And like, even I think this conversation is going to help with it, but yeah, I, I agree. I really liked it. I didn't love it. 
And yeah, I agree. It, it's not it's not like this huge lightning bolt of oh Marvel's Marvel's back, baby, and we're gonna feel the same way about it that we that we once did. But I felt like this was not only a really incredible film on its own, but like a really great sequel. Like mm-hmm. what I've kind of been hearing is the way that the Winter Soldier kind of reinvigorated and brought new life into the Captain America series. This is kind of doing that for Black Panther a little bit. Yeah, and what what I find so difficult to navigate in conversations about Marvel movies, almost like coming full circle to the fact that it's hard not to have to preface talking about a Christopher Nolan film with like, I know it, he's a dude, bro. Like there's an un unstated immediate critique of a Marvel film because people are fatigued with Marvel. Yeah. And some people just hate Marvel on principle and some people just uncritically love Marvel and we find ourselves somewhere in between that, which we love. Like I said earlier, we're not about right or wrong. We're about that messiness and complexity in between. Mm-hmm. And I feel for how that conversation about Marvel as a property, as a business might take away the fact that this is a movie led by women of color. Yeah. Like watching it, I was like, this is all black women. Yeah. Like together, mourning together, supporting each other together, disagreeing with one another, finding their way. Like it's phenomenal. And we so rarely see that anywhere, let alone in the blockbuster movies. Yeah, the, that huge cast list I said, there was one white person in it. And like what? One man? Two men? Two, one white man, one black man? Uh, black oh, man, and then, and then uh, Namor, yeah. Yeah. Who is um, Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just, I don't want that to get lost. And I, I worry that it will, that in the critique of has this saved Marvel or the conversations about, necessary conversations about Chadwick Boseman and and how this movie navigated that, that we will lose that. That's a really amazing thing. And that young people are going to get to see that. Yeah. A bit. It didn't happen necessarily to the degree that it happened when we saw black Panther, but there's a lot of people of color that were in the movie theater to see this movie with some young kids, like young, young kids, very young kids. And we saw that when the original Black Panther came out, we saw a a lot of people of color coming out with their young kids to see this movie and just like being so happy seeing not an an all white led cast telling this story. Well, in this, so this film, I'm very critical of that moment in Endgame where like all the ladies are on screen together. Cause I'm like, well, okay, so you did it for two seconds, but like, what does that mean? Like, what more are you going to do? And this film actually does that. Like, it's actually a film led by women. And it's like, those are the complex, interesting characters. They're in conversation with one another throughout the film. And that makes me so thrilled that there's going to be young folks who see themselves in that. But it also, I think, is really important for, you know, the little people in our lives. And two of them are white and two of them are not. um, Like our, our nibblings. Getting to see you know, people who do or do not look like them on screen, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's important for our niece and our nephew who are white like us to see people who don't look like them kicking ass, being complex, grieving, 
feeling emotions mm-hmm. on screen. I think that's important. And when they're that young, like if our seven-year-old nephew goes to see Black Panther, he's not going to know about complexities of how you integrate Chadwick Boseman's legacy into this film or understand <laughs> the critiques of the capitalist cog that is Marvel. He's just going to see a movie. Yeah. And I think that it is really amazing that this is a movie led by black women. Yeah. And I don't want that to go unnoticed and unappreciated because we just want to critique Marvel. Yeah. Because there are some things to critique about Marvel in this. I mean, at the end of the day, it has the big third act fight scene and it can be a little convoluted. But I have liked this so much more than any Marvel things I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think we were talking about on the way home, like when was the last time we were truly excited and and so stoked on something Marvel did? And the last time, it is recent, but it was Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was really tied up in just like our own love of the character of Spider-Man and our histories, having seen the Sam Raimi and the, I don't know who made the Andrew Garfield movies, but. Mark Webb. Yes. Like we liked and watched those when we were, you know, teen, preteens and then teens and then young adults. Whereas this was, we didn't have that personal connection to this film, but still we're really excited about it. Yeah. I, I'm generally just really taken with the character of Black Panther. Like I haven't read any comics or anything like that, but what they did with the character of Black Panther in the MCU, what they've done with the character of Black Panther so far, I've really enjoyed. And I really enjoy the politics of Wakanda and the story they tell about that in the original Black Panther film. And even the way they introduced the character of Black Panther in Civil War, I oh, think was really great. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, having Chadwick Boseman be the person that played that character first. And now that we've lost him, like we were talking about on the way home, like I do think I, and I agree with you, like they pay, they pay a respectful tribute to Chadwick Boseman without it starting to feel saccharine. Or like that, that's all the film is about, which is again, I, I, having seen the first black Panther so many times, grief is a fundamental part of the first film too. Mm -hmm. Like, T'Challa in the first film is attempting to navigate the grief over the loss of his father. I mean, it's very after son, honestly, like the Mm -hmm. idea of how do we try and figure out who a person is later in life? Yeah. How do we like where he starts to question like if his father was uncritically correct about everything and how much he wants to be like his dad by looking back at pieces of his life that he didn't necessarily know Mm -hmm. about. So This film being about grief, I don't know if the original version of it would have been, but it actually feels emotionally in line with the first film. Because the first film Mm -hmm. is about grief too, something that establishes that foil between T'Challa and Eric is that they both lost their fathers. Yeah. Right? And one, but the conditions of that loss are so different. Mm -hmm. And how they both navigate that loss is the fundamental driving force of the original Black Panther mm-hmm. and what you do with who you become and what your identity is when you have lost someone. Yeah. And so the fact that this film is able to explore that without feeling like it came out of nowhere in the way that it kind of necessarily has to because they chose to have T'Challa die in universe. Yeah. Worked really well for me. And I thought that, you know, you, you and me love a movie about grief. I thought it handled the concept of grief in a really nuanced 
and beautiful way that again, when you have black women leading this exploration of grief, I think that that's a really important thing to see on screen in a blockbuster that many people are going to access, like Mm. seeing the different approaches to grief, the different conversations about grief to see the emotions actually on screen and the cast handles that incredibly well, as I'm sure they were all dealing with their own literal grief over the loss of their friend and castmate. Yeah. No, that's, that's, you're totally right. That's really important. And it was really, it was really, really beautiful and complex, like from character to character of Mm -hmm. how they were dealing with that grief. Yeah, it was really well done. And I think a good, a good segue into who kind of had to do the most heavy lifting with that grief was Letitia Wright. Yeah, I feel, so again, it's so hard to, with Marvel in general, but I mean, any movie really, it's so hard to parse real life from the movies. And I think you and I can both definitively say that we do not agree with or support comments that Letitia Wright has made about COVID and vaccination. Yeah. That we fundamentally disagree with her um, and that, that that's, that's been troubling. Yeah, it's it's hard to and and to hear that she was bringing that sort of rhetoric onto the set of this film is also difficult. Well, she has denied that, and I don't know that any. I took a look after you said that, and I don't know that any like cast members or or like crew or Ryan Coogler have said that that's the case. So I mm. I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant about stating that as fact. Okay. Um, Internet's a tricky place when you're looking for information. It is. Um, but it is. But but you know, it is troubling that she kind of posted the things that she posted. Um, so it like, and it's, it's tough to reckon with that too, because you had said like, and I agree with you, Shuri is a major highlight of the first black. Panther. Oh yeah. Film. She is both actually really thematically important in the way that I teach the film. Um, but she's also just like super funny and she's like a standout and she's so smart and yeah, she's just like and, badass and cool. Yeah. And, um, a great counterpoint to her brother in the first film. And so, you know, trying, I I don't believe in separating the art from the artist, but I do believe in engaging with the art when it's in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Letitia Wright and the character of Shuri are the anchor to this film and she handles it incredibly well. Like she knocks it out of the park. And I just hope that maybe she's had some good conversations with people and, is growing and learning on her own in real life, I hope. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's interesting. I mean, having no knowledge of the comics, really, like, I didn't know what that tra- the trajectory for the character of Shuri was going to go down, you know, eventually. But to, to my knowledge, just from having seen the films, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought the Letitia Wright would have signed up to be a main character or be a lead in one of these Marvel movies. And through the death of Chadwick Boseman, she has now, and maybe sooner than they maybe intended to. But I think it was a really smart pivot, and I felt like it was the right thing to do, was to be like, we have such a great character here with Shuri, and now she has to deal with the loss of her brother and the changing dynamics of Wakanda within the the scope of the world. And she, yeah, she just, she brings a lot of emotional heft mm-hmm. from the, like the, from the opening scene. It just hits you in the heart. While still being really cool. Yeah. Really fashionable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Um, 
and and it's not just her, right? Like it's that kind of four core women that were in the original film as well. So the Peter Nyong'o is Nakia, um, Angela Bassett is R- Queen Ramonda, and Danai Guerrera as Okoye. Like they are all awesome in the mm-hmm. first film, but they get to really shine in this film, and they all bring it and are amazing. And Michaela Cole is a new addition to the cast. She plays Aneka, um, which was a smaller role than maybe I wanted because mm-hmm. I love Michaela Cole. Mm-hmm. Um, she made the show May Destroy I May you. Destroy You, which I think is one of the singular best creations ever made. And I think she's brilliant and I want all the best things for her in the world. And I um, hope that they do more with this character because she is so phenomenal. Let's also talk, though, about the character of Namor. Yeah. I really liked him. Yeah, I actually think that he's one of the best MCU villains that has existed across the MCU. And I really appreciated his story arc and where his character is by the end of the film. I just I just think where they really hit sweet spots with their villains, when the villains are really great in MCU is where you can see their motivation mm-hmm. and you can see the things that they want to do and that they believe that that is truly the best. And while, you know, maybe fundamentally it goes against a very human thing that most of us, you know, in the fight between good and evil, it falls more on the side of evil, but you understand why they're wanting to do the things they want to do. I like that complexity and it makes for a more complex quote unquote villain. And it's way more, it's way more engaging. And I, and I thought that just the character overall was from the moment, the first moment you see him on screen, you're like, okay, like we're in for something special here Mm -hmm. and unique that we don't often get in Marvel movies. And and there's been times where I've wanted that, like the, there's the potential for that in Christian Bale's character in Thor Love and Thunder. There's mm-hmm. the potential for that with Ghost in the second Ant-Man movie. And and it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And they just end up being like a cool looking kind of interesting, well acted villain. And that's about it. Whereas this, yeah. like the original Black Panther film with the character of Eric or Killmonger, affords humanity to the antagonistic force in the film such that they're not a villain. They are a complicated person who you understand their motivations, even if you disagree with them. And I think some people might not even disagree with them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, to make comparisons to one of our favorite pieces of media ever, the last of us and the last of us Two. I say all the time, the last of us Two. the thing that makes so many people angry about it without speaking about it too much. What that, game does is allow us to see that from a different perspective our protagonists are the villains yeah and it's just a matter of which point of view we've been put into and i think you know if we flip the script and we watch a film where namor and his people are the protagonists and the wakandans are the villains yeah so i i really like that complexity i have seen some comments and, and reviews that talked about how like at a certain point we need to just stop paying lip service to the fact that America sucks and like these Black Panther movies need to actually do something. Right. And like actually have something extreme happen. But the, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like this film is potentially paving the way for that. 
Yeah, especially if like we're, I mean, I don't really know where the MCU is going right now, but if really we're, don't. <laughs> but if we're gearing up for an Avengers 2, you know, which I think we are, like there's there's new Avengers movies that are slotted to be released. Like what is Black Panther's spot in that? Whereas, you know, I feel like Chadwick Boseman was all about unity and wanting to bring the world together. I don't know if that's where we net out at the end of this story. And, you know, if Wakanda is going to want to so closely align with America and the American led Avengers. And I think that there's some, uh, there's a really interesting story to be told there and I hope that they do it right. (laughs) Well, I, I don't know for sure because I've read some conflicting things, but I have read that this is the last film in phase four. Okay. Which, you know, if we're thinking phase one of the MCU was all about establishing, like it was like, here's Iron Man, here's Captain America, here's Thor. And then phase two starts to bring those people together. Mm-hmm. Then phase three is about like what the ultimate arc is. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we are entering into that next phase of everything's been set up individually. Now let's bring that set up together and understand how it's connected. Okay. It's, it's start. You know what I think it is? I think it's the shows that are starting to make this feel very convoluted. And maybe I'm overthinking it. We also haven't watched all the shows. Yeah. We I, did not watch She-Hulk and we did not finish Moon Knight. Yeah. I don't know. At any rate, I don't want to talk about that because I think that it does a disservice to Black Panther to focus too much on Marvel. Something that I thought was kind of interesting and it's a critique that I have of this movie is it introduces the character of Riri Williams, who is going to be the character Ironheart in the Disney Plus show Ironheart. Mm-hmm. I actually really liked her character here. I thought she was, I I, I liked that um, she's really spicy and really smart and like really cool. Uh, and she's also very small. <laughs> she's <laughs> very little. Um, but I knew that Ironheart was going to be introduced in this movie. You did not. So, I don't even know. I didn't even know what a, what an Ironheart was. Yeah, I, I mean, I t- t- I only know who the character was and that they would be introduced in this film. But you didn't, and we were sitting through the end credits, and the I think it said like Ironheart costume designed by whoever it was, and you leaned over to me and asked like, "What's Ironheart?" Mm-hmm. So. That's just, just from a storytelling perspective. Marvel is relying on its audience to fill in a lot of gaps if you aren't just like living and breathing Marvel necessarily. But I also wonder if it's a strategic and perhaps from me appreciated point of not trying to make Ironheart a thing in Black Panther. Hmm. Like Ironheart will then explore that more, but we don't have to like set up Ironheart in Black Panther. Unless mm. you want that to exist in there, right? I, I don't even think it necessarily needs to set it up. Just like say the name. <laughs> <laughs> Just know who this character is in like the larger scheme of the MCU. I mean, I didn't feel like I lost anything at all. It was just when that came up, I was like, what's that? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not upset about it. I don't think this, this movie is already too long. Yeah. I don't, don't think it needs anything else, but I do think it speaks to how there's a whole heck of a lot going on. Yeah. And it can easily feel like you're missing something, which I think is one of the reasons people are checking out from these films is they're like, I can't keep up with all of it and I'm sick of feeling like I have to, so I'm just not going to watch any of it. Yeah. Screw this, right? Mm-hmm. And Easy we, to feel that way too. Totally. I, I feel that way a lot of the time. We didn't see this on opening night, but I have noticed 
I think we saw Eternals on opening night. Yep. And we saw Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness on opening night. Anything else? You know, I think that those are the most recent ones. Yeah. But they, they, the crowd, it wasn't sold out on either of those shows. And it was really quiet. Um, the last time I've, I've gone to an opening night Marvel film and it was like energetic was Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I hope that this, we didn't see this on opening night and it was not a sold out theater when we went. We went on the second day after it had been, been released um, in a theater we don't normally go to. And there weren't a lot of people there. Everybody was like into it, but it, there wasn't like an, an energy, like mm-hmm. a cat crackling energetic feeling. And I'm curious if that was there for this or if like Marvel's just lost that. It's just not happening anymore. Yeah. Which is a shame because I think this is a really good movie and I think it's a really important movie for what it's doing for like depictions outside of what we typically see in movies like this. Yeah. Um, And like damn Marvel if they've shot themselves in the foot so much that now we're losing the potential to see what's important about a film like this because we just don't like Marvel. Yeah. It, it's... It's tough to reckon with, you know, maybe they're doing some of their most important work is when it's it's coming out at a time when its audience is the most fatigued. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I have a I have a friend who saw it on opening night and I'm excited to talk with her and find out what that was like just because we didn't experience it. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. I think that the the last thought that I have on this that I really, really appreciated about uh, this film, in addition to all the other things we we've talked about that we appreciate about it, is that it it has a mid credit scene that serves the story that's being told here and isn't leveraged to tease a new or other Marvel mm-hmm. cinematic universe property. It stays rooted in furthering this story mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to tell another one or set up another one. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. I liked that we stayed within this world and. And didn't get, wasn't being like, well, if you like this, you're going to love what's coming next. Mm-hmm. It stayed really quiet and rooted in this story. And I, li- I liked that a lot. Yeah. At the end of the day, I, I really liked this movie. It's it's impossible for me to look at it detached from the fact that it's a Marvel movie. But I really liked this movie. And I think it is an important movie that we will be talking about in the future. Yeah. I think if you did a twofer, like if you did both Black Panther movies back to back, I think that that'd be a great time. And I and you can't say that about all like I don't I don't even know if there's another movie you can say that about in Marvel. So I think Ryan Coogler knows his characters, knows his world and is staying committed to that. And I felt that this was a sequel to Black Panther as opposed to a, another step in Marvel. Yeah. And I appreciated that. Yeah, same. While it still has some of the Marvel pitfalls, when it sticks to being about the characters in this world that Ryan Coogler has adapted and and created, it was really good. How did Black Panther Wakanda Forever make you feel? Um, Well, I was supposed to ask you that question. Oh, sorry. I'm so glad that you asked me. (laughs) I just, I feel like this was my movie because I was so excited for it uh, and I stole that from you. I apologize. That's that's okay. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I felt excited and I felt engaged and and it's nice to feel that way in a larger Marvel property for the first time in a while. And yeah, I was really, I'm, I just feel so happy about what was done here and where it's going next. And with Ryan Coogler at the helm, uh, I think that this is, 
it's felt very apparent that this is a passion of his mm -hmm. telling these stories. So I'm very excited for what comes next. How about you? How did it make you feel? It made me feel very engaged. Like I was very, very much able to watch the film without getting too in my head about Marvel stuff, which I wasn't able to do with Thor Love and Thunder or Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Mm -hmm. This I was able to just watch for what it was, which I really appreciated it. Appreciated. Um, I also was just incredibly moved by how it navigated grief, both on like a meta textual level and within the text itself. And I think that depictions and conversations about grief are really important and that we struggle so often to talk about grief, particularly grief over death. Um, and I just am really grateful that young people are going to get to see that and that it perhaps perhaps can open up conversations with the adults in their lives about what grief is and means and how we move through that experience. And I think it's all the more important that we see it through the brilliant acting and characterization of these black women. Yeah. I love that. All right. We got through all the movies coming out the other side. Let's name some bad dads and rad dads of the week. All righty. Who's your bad dad nominee? I have nominated Lydia Tarr. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Played by the absolutely babely Kate Blanchett. Yep. Why is she a bad dad? She believes that the fact that she's talented, which she is, mm -hmm. makes her superior and above protocols and rules and not even protocols and rules, but just above decency. Yeah. Um, she's just got this like holier than thou attitude. She's also manipulative. She's selfish, which is always ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Bad dad. You're bad dad. If you're selfish. Um, and, like, at the end of the day, she's just kind of a jerk. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree with all of those things. Selfish, of course, being at the very top, she's harmful. She's hurtful, but yeah, she uses her power and influence that she has for all the wrong reasons. It's, and in doing that, it can feel very thoughtless. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, self-serving. And when you become a parent, and in the context of this show, a dad, it gives you power yeah. over the child that you have brought into the world through whatever means you have. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see someone using that kind of power the way that Lydia Tarr uses her power. So bad dad. Yeah. If with great power also comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Lydia Tarr, frick off. Um, rad dad of the week. Who's your rad dad? I said who my bad dad was. You tell me who your rad dad is. I picked Akoye, Denai Guerrero from Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The thing about her is I, I love her and everything that she's, that she's in across the MCU. But in this film in particular, like you said, she just gets so much more to play with. And the character of Akoye, like she stands up for her beliefs and what she believes that is right. Uh, she's resourceful. She's strong-willed. She's protective. And she's caring. And she's just a badass. Mm -hmm. um, and she's not afraid to show her vulnerabilities. Like, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't put up a wall to how she's feeling all the time. And being able to show that vulnerability, I think, is really important when, when, when you're a parent. I think it's important to show your kids vulnerability and that you're not invincible. Who's your pick? 
So I struggled with this one because I kind of went back and forth between Akoye Nakia and Queen Ramonta. Ah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think they all show different and equally important approaches to being a rad dad. Yeah. In the end, I settled on Queen Ramonda. Okay. Uh, and my reasoning was that she knows who she is and she uses that to help guide others rather than admonish them. Like she attempts to gently guide others into reflecting on their own beliefs or their own practices and processes. She's protective and thoughtful. And just in the end, I thought she was kind of the opposite of Tar. Like she's somebody with power and control and ambition and opportunity. And she uses that to protect and reflect and, and give, you know, like support others. Now there is one scene that I think kind of challenges that, that we can't get into. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a part of me that just wants to give a Kodad award to Okoye Nakia and Queen Ramonda. So I think this is really a film that demonstrates that like dad doesn't have to be singular. Mm -hmm. That like some, and you know, I think this is something that we talk about a fair amount in this show that like, you know, collect your dads wherever you can. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one person can be everything. We need more than one rad dad yeah. in, in our lives. And I think that, that kind of combination, like Nakia, one of the reasons I considered her was she's so, she is the epitome of like calm and gentle parenting and like approaching with love first. Yeah. Cause I, I'm kind of, as you're, as you're talking, like I kind of feel like if we put ourselves in the shoes of Shuri. Cause I think of all these three as, as parents to her. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's how I'm kind of framing it in my mind. And a little bit of Mbaku too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone needs a triple dad. Try dad, the triumvirate of dads. Try dad. All right. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm here for it. I don't know how I'm going to do the graphic, but we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll make it happen. So for our first ever try dad award, um, the women of Wakanda, Queen Ramonda, Nakia, and Okoye, be our dads. dads. Love it. All right. Just before we get out of here, we got a rad wreck to hit you with. Kylie, why don't you take the lead on this one? Okay, so as any queer millennial from Alberta must, I'm obsessed with Tegan and Sarah <laughs> and have been since I was like 12, 13 years old. Um, have bottled all my haircuts after them pretty much since then uh, mm -hmm. when I could afford to get haircuts. Bought and rebought multiple versions of their records. Oh, yeah. I have them on vinyl. I have them on CD CD album. Is that what you said earlier? CD album. CD album. Um Artwork all over our house of Tegan and Sarah. I have their book. We've I've seen and met them so many times. So yes, I am a Tegan and Sarah stan. And they have a new TV show that came out based on their memoir, High School. TV show is called High School. In Canada, you can watch it on Prime, which like I know boo Jeff Bezos, but also find a sneaky, sneaky way to get it if you want to be like us, but not like us. We do things by the book. Um, <laughs> it's show ran by Clea Duvall who I also really like. Uh, and we crushed it this week. We watched all of it. It's, I believe, eight. Yeah. Eight half-hour episodes, so it's really manageable. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Yeah, it's great. Like, I mean, I, I know that I just went on about how I am obsessed with Tegan and Sarah, but I think removing the Tegan and Sarah from it, 
it's a really good show. I think even if you don't know who Tegan and Sarah are, hopefully this could be a gateway for you because they rock. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't, if you aren't invested in Tegan and Sarah as people and like their music and their their other art, um, I just think it's a really good show. Yeah. Yeah. It's really well done. Uh, well acted. And it, it's Colby Smulders is in it. She's a standout for me. Like, I think she's great. But the biggest thing is that it's filmed in Calgary mm-hmm. and oh man, does it look like Alberta? <laughs> Alberta in the nineties, which is when we grew up. Yeah. Right? Like, like the houses, the neighborhoods, the, the streets, it all just reeks of where we live. And I believe um, they filmed in Tegan and Sarah's actual high school. So even the school feels so reminiscent of like our high school. Yeah. There's even a mention of BPs at one point. Yeah. Like I'm just going to go meet the boys at BPs. I'm like, excuse me. If you were Canadian, <laughs> you get it. You know, <laughs> Uh, the first time you and I, Elliot, hung out again after we kind of didn't didn't really stay connected after after high school for us, you texted me and invited me out to BPs. Yeah, gotta go to BPs. We went to BPs. Yeah, uh, no, I I loved it. I'm looking forward to subsequent seasons. The, if they don't great. get a second season, I'm going to be devastated. It's really it's really really good. People have compared it to my so called life, mm. and I think it's got that that vibe to it. It's so much more than just the story of Tegan and Sarah. It, you know, it expands out on that to explore, you know, the character of their mother, who I think a lot of this is now fictionalized and is kind of departing from their memoir, which I think is important. It's Mm -hmm. inspired by that. And that's the grounding point, but it's become its own thing. Um, The soundtrack freaking slaps. Oh yeah. Like it's all nineties music. Like it's smashing pumpkins and Nirvana and, whole and like it's Mm -hmm. just it's so good the fashion is so 90s which is wild because it's coming back watching tegan and sarah start to write their own songs when like you know a little bit of that history is really fun the the two that play them uh season and rayleigh do such a great job and they had never acted before it's just it's honestly it's it's really good and yeah didn't they find those two on tiktok TikTok? wild it's it's just it's honestly I can't say enough good things about it. Um, I think we'll have another TV show to Rad Rack next week, but yeah. we haven't finished it yet. And honestly, I think the two would pair really well together. But for now, if you haven't watched High School or heard of High School, um, I'd give the first couple episodes a try. It's an hour of your time if you watch two of them and, and see what you think. Because I think the show is really deserving of a watch. I think to have this in the specificity of 1990s Calgary with this like queer coming of age story is really important and awesome and i'm so impressed with it i was really impressed there's always a fear when you're like oh i love these people so i'll just support this thing they're doing mm-hmm. but no it's it's really great yeah a lot of care put into it and yeah and when you're a, when you're a super fan of something i think you can be really precious about something like this but mm-hmm. thankfully it's very very good and also listen to their new album cry baby because it is a friggin' bop yeah very good that's it all right okay Thank you so much for listening. So yeah, we drop a new episode every Thursday, but like I mentioned at the top of the episode, we are premiering our very first daddy deep dive episode on the film after sun, which we're going to be dropping on Sunday, this next upcoming Sunday after this episode drops. Highly recommend you go see after sun if you can. Yeah. Seek it out. Um, It is very possibly my favorite movie I've ever seen in my entire life. But what I can say definitively is it is the film that has spoken most deeply to me in Mm. my entire life. Um, Our episode is in depth. It's long. I think it's going to be about two hours. Um, And our 
friend of the show, best friend in real life, absolute amazing human being, Ashley Meyer, joined us for that. There is a lot of, I think, really complex, beautiful discussion of the film, but also our, our, personal own, stories. our own personal stories about grief and life and memory uh, and a lot of tears. I talk a lot just to give a little content warning for those who have lost in their life about the death of my own father in more depth than I have on our, on our regular show. And I cry a lot while I do it. Mm -hmm. um, it would mean the world if you would listen to, to that one and let us know what you think about daddy deep dives. And if you want to hear more of them, we don't know how often we're going to do them. Could be once a year, could be once a month. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet, but if you listen and you like it, please let us know and tell us what you want us to do a daddy deep dive on next. Yeah. And as we mentioned, it is a spoiler filled conversation. So we are going, we're diving, we're diving deep. It's right in the name um, <laughs> into the film talking about spoiler details. So yeah, like Kylie said, highly recommend watching after sun before diving into the episode. But until then, we encourage you to follow us and slide into our DMS over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. You can get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes and we would absolutely love you forever. If you could drop us a rating review or follow on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Well, that is going to do it for these stinkies this week. So until next time, I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.